we've started looking at kind of all of our courses through a cross-cultural lens, and it's been uh, surprising some of the things that you can imagine, some gaps that were exposed in that process. So, for example, for you know years, we've been teaching Christian worldview. But when we started looking at that through a cross-cultural lens, we were surprised to discover that we actually say nothing in that class about culture. So here's like the biggest element of worldview, culture, and we're not even talking about it. Welcome to Listener. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today, we're speaking with Keith Johnson, Cruise Director of Theological Development. After the pilot episode aired, the first interview request I received was from staff Jason Beeden asking for a Keith Johnson podcast. Is there someone you'd like to hear interviewed? Email me at samanthaholland at crew.org. Enjoy the show. Keith, last year, I think it was during our National Leadership Conference, we all went to do sort of a forced fun event at Downtown Disney. And we were all requesting songs, and I'm pretty sure you kept requesting the Star Trek theme. Does does this ring a bell? <laughs> do you identify as a Trekkie? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, unabashedly. I have, uh, I've got a nice Pez container that's sealed that's got like heads of several of the original Star Trek figures. I have Star Trek ships. Okay, this is, this is funny. When, um, so when Rhonda and I got married, uh, she was still living in Chicago. She went to Trinity as well. So that was kind of a place where we connected, even though we joined staff together. And so she was still working on our degree and I was living in Indianapolis at that point. And so we bought a house together and I was living in there by myself. So I moved in and I put my Star Trek ships on the fireplace mantle and they were beautiful. I could kind of walk in and see them. Well, when Rhonda got there and came in the door, this is what she said to me. She said, you know, I think you would be able to enjoy those ships more if they were in your office where you could see them all the time. And like that, they were gone. <laughs> She sounds like a wise um, woman gifted in communication skills. That's right. Yeah, definitely. You know, my very first small group I led, though, when I was a college student, so this was like 35 years ago, um, that was like our, that was my point of affinity for the group. We would get Domino's Pizza and watch the original Star Trek on Sunday night. And I think that filtered out the people who came and, and those who didn't. Okay, so do you prefer the original Star Trek uh, you know what? I really, I really like the Next Generation with uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean Luc Picard, and uh, Voyager was was not too bad. Um, and I've actually enjoyed like the the more recent J.J. Abrams movies. He actually is writes better Star Trek scripts than Gene Roddenberry. He's good. Who, found, who is the founder of Star Trek? Yeah, Abrams is good. Well, Keith, thanks for being with us today. I am hoping that you could start out by just telling us a little bit about your own story of your life on staff with crew and then how you came to the role that you're in now. Sure. Well, I'm glad to be able to join you. Um, my first assignment was in Chicago at Northwestern University, little school over there on uh, Lake Michigan. And I spent eight years there uh, while I was working at Northwestern part-time. That's when I kind of pursued some additional theological training. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School part-time. Did you get a degree from Trinity? I did, yeah. It was a Master of Arts in, I think it was Biblical and Systematic Theology, they called it. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
that's the degree I'm going for right now at Western Seminary. <laughs> oh, very cool. You know, when Bill started Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, his vision was to recruit seminary graduates to come and work with him. But he discovered pretty quickly that seminary graduates weren't really interested in working with Campus Crusade for Christ. And so many of the people that he recruited to come serve were people like me. My undergraduate degree was in engineering. And uh, so he found people who had a heart for the Great Commission and who were teachable, um, but hadn't had uh, formal biblical and theological training. And so in 1962 uh, was when the Institute of Biblical Studies was launched. My wife, Rhonda, and I uh, worked in Indianapolis for about four and a half years, and we served with the regional team there. And uh, after I made that move, um, learned about the world of what then we called human resources and later leadership development and now people and culture and campus. And that was kind of my first introduction to the area of theological education. So I was working with the ops team, with the HR team, did a little global missions uh, kind of work then too. And then um, in 2000, um, my role that I have presently, I really moved into, um, but we moved to North Carolina. And so I was kind of commuting to uh, Orlando some and uh, spent several years working, doing doctoral work at uh, Duke University. And then we moved to Orlando about 10 years ago and uh, have uh, lived there since. Why do we need a director of theological development? Uh, good question. Um, and maybe a helpful way to answer that question would be to reframe that as kind of why do we need theological development uh, as missionaries who serve with crew? Um, so I think my, my short answer would be that there are biblical and theological competencies that we need to carry out our mission. I mean, one of the most basic ones would be the ability to communicate the gospel, right? That's, there's, a, there's a head component to that. There's some things you have to understand about the gospel. There's a uh, hands component to it. You can know a lot about the Bible, but not be able to communicate the gospel in a clear way. And uh, there's a heart component to it. You have to believe that it's important. So IBS started in 62, and what happened was you would spend your first three summers as a new crew missionary uh, going to IBS, and that's why we call our courses first year, second year, and third year courses. So about 10 years later, uh, we launched uh, summer, what became Summer Missions. That was a great step forward for us as an organization missionally, but it also had the unintended effect of paving the way for marginalizing our theological training during the summer. So by the time I joined in the late 80s, um, IBS was more like an interesting elective rather than an organizational necessity. One of the challenges we had was how do we help our staff get theological training without undermining all the great things that are going on during the summer? I can see how it would have been really helpful if I'd been required to complete my IBS classes within three years. I mean, what's been great is it's been flexible. And as a mom, I've been able to take a lot of the courses online. But just last summer, after being on staff for 15 years and giving talks, I finally took um, biblical interpretation and communication and learned how to do it. And I thought, oh, this is why it's so helpful if we take our IBS courses early on in our staff career. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, and I often read on course evaluations from staff, especially in those two classes, like, I wish I had taken this 10 years ago. For many years, the only way that you could get IBS courses was during the summers, and we have tried to broaden that, so we have kind of three main ways that we deliver courses. There are summer 
uh, IBS, which we've always had. Uh, but then we have virtual IBS. We have about half of our IBS required courses that are available uh, online. And then the third area is what we call local IBS. And that's where we'll take an IBS course to a major city or a place where there's a concentration of staff and we'll deliver it over a week. And we probably do, I don't know, probably a dozen of those courses from New York City to LA uh, every year. I took one of those local IBS courses through Western Seminary from Gary Brashears about a year ago. It was a theology course. And he, one of my favorite books last year was one he recommended during that class. It was the 3D Gospel. And he, in that book, Jason Georges describes the gospel as a multifaceted diamond. And he says that our cultural context informs the way that we look at the gospel. And I know you were recently involved with developing a new version of the Knowing God Personally outline based on these honor-shame ideas. So can you tell us about that process and what you've learned through that? Yeah. Um, so let me back up a little bit from that tool and just say that I think the, you know, this is kind of comes under that category of kind of crossing cultures. Um, this is an area for us and crew, and we've been talking about this, but that we really need to grow. Uh, in the campus ministry, we're mindful that in a few years that Caucasian uh, students like myself will be minorities uh, on our campus, and that there's this growing gap between the ethnic complexion of our missionary force and the audience we're trying to reach. And so unless we make some substantial changes, we're going to be engaging in increasingly narrower cross-section of the campus. And so there have been lots of organizational change uh, process that's been in place, but for, this has been a priority for us for about, I don't know, probably six or seven years uh, that we've been focused on and uh, it is an area that we need to grow. And I really love that image of the gospel as this beautiful diamond. Um, and sometimes the challenge is that you and I are communicating what for us may be good news, but not necessarily what would initially be understood by others as good news. And, and one clear example of that is in the kind of the shame, honor versus the guilt, innocence. Um, in our uh, kind of Western culture, it's largely shaped by kind of a guilt-innocence mindset. And so our kind of traditional knowing God personally, present, God personally presentation speaks directly to that. But for somebody who comes from a shame-honor context, which is really more than the kind of majority of the global population, um, that they don't connect as well uh, on that. And so we in, in IBS... Uh, we've been looking at ways to address shame honor. So last summer in their biblical interpretation and communication course, we tried to weave in uh, some things related to shame honor. So we talked about the Bible story kind of through the thread uh, of shame and honor. And there's another book that I really liked that one of our professors, Dr. Ben Shin, introduced to me that Jason Georges was involved in as well, but it's called Ministering and Honor Shame Contexts. And so it's quite a bit longer than the 3D gospel book, but it's great because it looks at um, kind of understanding honor shame, and then uh, it looks at kind of the biblical stories in terms of honor and shame. And what's striking is how um, honor shame is just all through the Bible. And I know for me, I've just, I've missed that because that's not uh, part of my cultural grid. So a simple story like... Um, David and Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, 
um, is honor and shame, that he's lost honor and his honor is restored. And you see kind of that, I mean, example after example of that kind of running through the Bible. So we really need to grow, as one author says, in terms of our gospel fluency in our ability to communicate the gospel in a way that connects beautifully with a lot of different people. So uh, there was a team in uh, the campus research and development that uh, Chris Sneller uh, has led. He served with Bridges for many years, and uh, his team has worked on developing uh, this new Honor Shame gospel presentation, and you can download it. So if you have God tools, you can go in and, and download it to your phone or tablet or iPad. And uh, it's it's designed to have a um, kind of the same framework as like the four spiritual laws are knowing God personally. So there's four main points, but it really communicates the gospel in terms of our shame, Christ taking our shame on himself and restoring uh, our honor and our relationship with the Father. And so there's another tool. I'm hoping to uh, get this into God tools eventually, but it's called Who Will Have Their Honor Restored the Father's Love? And, um, and if you do a Google search for it, uh, you, can, you can look at a PDF. Uh, Jason George's, kind of his group, there were several who were involved in developing this. But what's fun about this tool is that it uh, is a shame honor gospel presentation, but through a narrative. So it takes the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 and kind of walks through the story um, in a way that really sets up the gospel. And that, uh, that story is really replete with elements of honor and shame, like when the father goes and runs to his son, you know, in an honor-shame context, you know, an older, the son should come to the father. And so there's things that are in that story that we don't even appreciate that are scandalous kind of in that, in an honor-shame uh, context. So I'm actually really excited about that, uh, the work that's being done in that area. And I think it's just an area that we as an organization need to continue to grow in our, in our gospel fluency. Um, I wonder, um, would you want to talk a little bit more about, uh, in terms of IBS, some of the changes we've made in terms of addressing crossing cultures, maybe a little bit more generally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was going to ask about what classes have been added to IBS recently and why, kind of how do you think through the curriculum? A great question. So our IBS curriculum includes uh, 11 classes. And um, some of the names of those classes haven't changed, but we've been in the process of making changes to kind of all the courses, and we've also made some, some bigger changes. So we've started looking at kind of all of our courses through a cross-cultural lens, and it's been uh, surprising, some of the things. You can imagine some gaps that were exposed in that process. So, for example, for you know, years, we've been teaching Christian worldview. But when we started looking at that through a cross-cultural lens, we were surprised to discover that we actually say nothing in that class about culture. So here's like the biggest element of worldview, culture, and we're not even talking about it. Um, you know, we're focused on kind of the, we use the Jim Sire text, so kind of those different worldviews like naturalism, existentialism, uh, et cetera. And, and that's helpful but when you have that lens, something like shame on or doesn't even show up as a data point, you know, in that framework. And so, so we made a number of changes to, uh, to that class. Um, 
this last well, last couple years, we've changed the design of our church history class. So the church history class that we've taught largely focuses on kind of Western European church history, at least after you get to the Middle Ages and on. And, uh, and so we had the thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had a course that could tell a bigger story, a kind of a global Christian history and give snapshots of how the church has spread? Because Christianity spread not only into Europe, um, north into Europe, but also south into Africa and east into Syria. And of course, the gospel for the first time goes to China at the same time, it's going to the British Isles for the first time. So we thought it would just be great if there was a way we could tell some of that story and give staff a kind of broader perspective. So, so our church history class is now kind of a global uh, Christian history course. In our courses that teach our staff how to read and communicate the Bible, so that would be like Bible study methods, biblical interpretation, uh, biblical communication, we've been trying to draw attention to the way culture shapes the way we, uh, we read the Bible. Um, there's a, a fascinating uh, little just example of this. Um, Mark Allen Powell, who's a New Testament professor, he did a little experiment with a group of students where he had them retell the story of the prodigal son. And he noticed that when they told the story that none of them uh, mentioned the famine uh, in the story. Remember, there's like a famine, and the, so the son doesn't have any money, and he's like feeding the pigs. And he thought, gosh, that's really interesting. And so he tried it again with some different audiences, and he noticed that this was pretty consistent. Well, then he went and taught this course in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he asked the same question to that audience. And I don't remember the percentage, but the majority of his audience kind of mentioned the famine. Why? Well, because during World War II, there was a massive famine and millions of Russians died. And it reflects this fact that our, our cultural context, you know, shapes what we think is interesting in the narrative. And so if you ask a group of Westerners, you know, why was the sun penniless? You know, why was the sun penniless? You know, uh, someone like me might say, well, because of his personal sin. Whereas somebody in St. Petersburg will might say, well, because there was a famine. Well, you know, which is it? Well, the answer is it's actually both. And, um, and so anyway, we're culture shapes, you know, the way we read stories. And so we've been trying to, uh, we've been trying to draw attention to that. And then probably the biggest change that we've made in January, 2016, we launched a new course that we've been working on for several years. And if you're familiar with the perspectives class, um, this is kind of like a crew version of perspectives and we call it intro to mission. And it's got four pieces to it. There's a biblical piece that traces God's missionary heart from Genesis to Revelation. There's a history piece that traces the, the history of Christian mission, both West and East. There's a, a culture piece um, that looks at uh, kind of three topics. What is culture? We talk about ethnography. And then how do we contextualize the gospel? And the last part of the class is we call the strategic piece. And that answers two questions. Uh, one is, how does CREW as an organization fit into this kind of mm -hmm. uh, global history of missions? And then second, how, what does it mean for us to live as missionaries with CREW? Okay, I wonder if you could tell us maybe about some of the complexities of your role as Director of Theological Development. And just as CREW grows, and also as culture changes so rapidly around us. Yeah, so when you think about theological development, we often think about 
IBS, um, but we act, what, what we do, and so this is a little bit of the complexity, is much broader than that. IBS is kind of one part of our role, and, and this is probably something that you'll see more in the future. There's not we're just kind of on the leading edge of this, but is really helping uh, grow in the area of moral and ethical formation. And this relates to the conversation that we're having about becoming a multi-ethnic organization. Um, our conversations we had at Crew 15 and Crew 17 in terms of, of justice uh, and race, uh, and these are important issues and they're really ethical questions. And it's really, it's an area as an organization that we are, um, that we really need to grow. I'll say a little bit more about that. Maybe we can circle back to that. I wonder if I could ask you about one more topic that can is kind of hot in our culture right now, um, women in leadership. You know, I remember coming on staff, new staff training in the early 2000s and um, hearing our leaders get up and talk about men and women leading alongside each other in our organization. It was a really new experience for me. I'd grown up in a pretty conservative church. And then as my staff life went on, some of the things I experienced were, um, well, I got asked to speak at our weekly meeting and I was conflicted about that because I'd always been taught, well, women can't teach the Bible to men. And then I was um, told from other leaders, well, you're not really, you're not preaching, you're just sharing. It was all, kind of a gray area, kind of vague. I know we're not technically the church. We're a parachurch, but um, yeah, what are your thoughts on women in leadership? Uh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so I think a couple things in terms of maybe framing this would be helpful. Uh, one is that as an organization, we don't take a theological position on the question of uh, you know, ordination of women, like senior pastor, uh, kind of that conversation that's going on in, in evangelicalism. You know, the things that we've taken a position on are outlined in our 17-point statement of faith. And one of the frameworks that we teach at New Staff Training in our first-year theology class, uh, kind of three categories of doctrines. So we talk about conviction-level doctrines, persuasion-level doctrines, and opinion-level doctrines. So the first, and we use kind of concentric circles. So if you could picture like three circles, the innermost circle would be those conviction-level issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, th those would be issues that to deny those is basically to deny the gospel. Um, so those would be things like the, you know, the deity of Christ, uh, salvation by grace, um, Christ is God, etc. So that's kind of our first category. The second category is what we would call uh, persuasion level doctrines. And these are issues over which Christians may uh, legitimately disagree. And that could include things like the age of the earth, um, forms of church government, um, you know, there's a whole variety of uh, baptism, kind of how we think about baptism, like should only professing believers be baptized or is it appropriate to baptize infants? Um, and, you know, a number of other questions like that. And then the third category is what we call opinion level issues. And as you read systematic theology books, a lot of them will draw a distinction between kind of essential and secondary 
which would be another way to say this. But I think the third category is important because there are some areas of Christian practice where there may not actually be one correct Christian answer. Um, you know, an example might be like, um, you know, should your church serve wine or grape juice at communion? Or um, how many officers should your church have? Um, so, and, and in one sense, you can think of like different um, areas of, like a category of doctrine can actually span all three. So maybe the fact that Christ has a church is like kind of that center circle. Um, kind of broadly, how you think about church government maybe is the second one, and how many officers you have is the third. So I think one thing in terms of approaching this conversation about women in leadership um, is that we we kind of locate this theologically kind of in the right category. And so the question is sort of what kind of what kind of doctrine is this? And I should add one more thing about that little paradigm. As you, as you move from the center circle out, so we talk about convictions and then persuasions and then opinions, it sounds as you move out like maybe you're less certain. And um, that's not exactly what we're trying to, to communicate. The difference among those is simply what category does this doctrine fit in, not how strongly do I feel about it? So, for example, you know, if I've spent a lot of time studying the area of baptism and I believe that only professing believers should be baptized, I may feel very strongly about that. What makes it a persuasion level issue is not how strongly I feel about it, but the fact that my answer on that isn't wrapped up in the truth of the gospel. And so, so the, I think of the question of ordination um, kind of in that second circle and so that's an area in crew where, as our second paragraph of our statement of faith says, that we allow for, uh, we use the phrase freedom of conviction. We actually use the term conviction in a little different way than I just did in this paradigm. But we allow for freedom of conviction on other doctrinal matters, provided that uh, it's based on the Bible alone and it doesn't become a hindrance to our mission. So my encouragement to staff as I've talked with staff about this area over the years is that they study the scriptures and they arrive at their own biblically informed uh, persuasions uh, on that. So that would be kind of the, the first thing that I would want to say. Um, then the second thing I would want to say is that um, the, our, kind of our identity is an organization. So are we asking uh, men or women to focus in, you know, kind of focus or to function like uh, a pastor, um, and uh, the answer is no. Now, there's things that we do that may look like that, um, but, but there is a distinction to our context. And I think part of, part of how I like to help staff kind of navigate this is I want to I help people see that both whether you hold kind of a complementarian view or you hold the egalitarian view, that we can lock arms together and, and serve in crew. And that means I don't have the freedom to kind of impose my views on somebody else on that theologically, uh, that as a, you know, as a team leader, I want to create space for people to live that out. So someone who is a complementary, so someone, someone who's an egalitarian who believes that, you know, in a local church, that any kind of roles or offices should purely be based on gifting and experience, um, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to have so many questions about that. So let's talk more about somebody who's a complementarian. Uh, for somebody who's a complementarian, the way they would think about their work in crew and our commitment to uh, working together, men and women leading together, 
is uh, they would say that um, I'm not thinking of myself in kind of a pastoral role, that um, that even, in t- you know, it's not a core part of my job that I'm like uh, kind of a pastor kind of teaching the Bible regularly. And so we do have men and women together teaching the scriptures and kind of mix mixed gendered context, but they could still see that in kind of their own complementarian framework. And I found that's the, I found that that's the best way to help staff is to see how they can live kind of faithfully to, to who they are. And certainly as an organization, we've had women who've made great contributions to our ministry kind of from the earliest time. And, and one of the things that I love about crew, you know, so, so one place the complementarian egalitarian uh, conversation comes out is in terms of leadership roles, but the others in terms of the family and really in crew, there, there are freedom for husbands, wives together to figure out kind of how they can live out their, uh, their biblical persuasions uh, and opinions in, in how they think about that. And it's one of the things that I really love about serving with crew. Now, I've also observed, though, that this can be theologically a, a sticking point for staff. And, and I think one of the things that's just helpful to be aware of is that when you serve in an organization like crew that's that we have a theological identity that's expressed in our statement of faith, some things that we take a position on, there are other things that we don't take a position on. And that can create friction sometimes for us as staff, because there's some area maybe that we've studied, some area of Christian truth that we think is really important. And, uh, and we would love to see the organization kind of embrace that and live that out. And that's kind of what we've chosen not to do. And what's interesting sometimes is I'll talk to staff who on this issue feel uh, frustration or they feel like I'm making a sacrifice because crew either on, on either side is kind of not, um, not articulating kind of my view. But what I've found is that many staff experience that same tension maybe in some other area. And, and one of the things that I've observed more recently is I, I feel like um, the whole question of, say, multi-ethnic versus ethnic-specific outreach, it's, it's kind of become a little bit like that egalitarian, complementarian kind of conversation and crew where I see kind of a lot of tension. And, uh, and one of the things that I found, and maybe I'll use an analogy from outside of crew that I, that I often use to help staff as they process this, but uh, my wife and I are, uh, go to a Presbyterian church. Uh, in Orlando that we, uh, we really, really enjoy, love being there. But in terms of like baptism, um, we're kind of more persuaded on believer's baptism. And so we go to church and I see infants being baptized, uh, you know, at least, at least once a month. And, uh, and so, you know, from my perspective, biblically, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, and yet, uh, and yet I'm kind of a part of that church. And so there's kind of some tension I live with. And you could say, well, Keith, why don't you just go to a, like a Baptist church that's a mile down the road? But the reason is because it's one of the most emotionally healthy churches I've attended uh, in many years. We love the vision of the church, most of the theology of the church we agree with. And so um, I, I don't get to live out everything maybe that I think is biblically the true um, but I'm still committed to being there because we think that that's where God is, where God has called us. And so, and I found that staff can experience that and sometimes it can lead us off the rails and, and occasionally it can be part of how God uses to move us somewhere else. Well, Keith, I wonder if we could circle back. You mentioned that one of the priorities that you're thinking about is moral ethical formation. Yeah. 
can you, what is, how does that play out? What does that look like when you're thinking through that? Good. Well, yeah, let me see if I can kind of describe the problem and kind of how we got there to, to see that. Um, a few years ago, we started having a more intentional conversation about uh, wanting to become a multi-ethnic organization and to see the complexion of our missionary force uh, reflect that of our audience, uh, to see our leadership uh, reflect that. And uh, we've been having conversations about issues of, of justice, the reality of systemic racism, and so when that conversation got going, I started thinking about, well, where, okay, what kind of conversation is that theologically? Like, what is it that we're talking about theologically when we're talking about race and we're talking about justice? And um, what, I guess what kind of dawned on me is that that conversation is really a conversation about ethics, um, specifically ethics of kind of how do we, how do we relate to one another well, one of our challenges in crew, and this is not just true of crew as an organization, it's a challenge for majority culture evangelicalism, is that we, um, we're, we're better at teaching people how to believe like Christians than how to live like Christians. And so let me see if I can flesh this out. The, the person who's probably helped me the most in thinking about this is uh, Dr. Carl Ellis, um, African-American theologian. He, actually his wife, Karen, she goes by K.A. Ellis. She spoke at Crew 15. And Carl has taught um, IBS for us um, several times. And so picture, if you will, a rectangle. And you draw a line down the middle of the rectangle. And on the left is side A. And on the right is side B. Okay? So this, um, this rectangle's theology, you have side A and side B. Um, side A is beliefs, and side B is ethics, how we live. And what, what Carl Ellis would say is that organizations like Crew, kind of dominant majority culture, evangelicalism, that we tend to live over on the side A, often to the exclusion of side B. That is, we're very focused on beliefs, but often to the exclusion of, of ethics. And as I've as I've thought about this description, I feel like it's, it's opened a lot and given me eyes to, to see things that I didn't see before. So here's a little thought experiment. If we went out and asked a group of our new staff over in Daytona, um, you know, tell us what do you have to believe to serve with crew? They all know, you know, our 17 point statement of faith. But what if you ask them, well, can you tell me what crew's missionary ethics are? Like, how is it that we want to live and be experienced as missionaries serving with crew? Um, I think you'd get kind of a blank stare. Now, the ironic thing or interesting thing is that we actually have a missionary ethics. It's in our um, HR handbook, and it's in the section called Missionary Rights and Responsibilities. But I've been with crew 30 years, and I've never heard anybody talk about it or teach from it. And, uh, and so... So this is a this is a challenge that we face, and and so here's so that's kind of one angle on this. Another though, if you think about, say in Paul's letters, like in his um, say Titus, Titus chapter two, Paul writes to Titus and he says, "Teach what accords with sound doctrine." Okay, so if you just read that much of the verse, and then we went and asked 
focusing crew, majority culture, um, what do you imagine Paul is thinking about? We would tend to gravitate towards thinking, well, Paul is talking about things that could be in our 17-point statement of faith, our beliefs about God and Christ and sin and salvation. But interestingly, what follows is he says, uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That is, teach older men to be temperate, self-controlled, discerning, teach older women, you know, and he goes through the list. And, and what's interesting is that most of what he talks about is ethical. It's actually about how we live. And so what's striking is when Paul talks about doctrine, he's thinking not only about what we believe, but also, but also how we live. And, uh, and so we, if you look at IBS, so here's another window into like what Carl says is wrong. IBS has been all side A. You know, we're teaching, we're focusing on side A, our beliefs, and the side B ethics. Like we, out of our 11 courses until last summer, we've had no, no ethics at all. Uh, I mean, we do some things in terms of, you know, how to give a talk or how to, how to share the gospel, um, but that ethics area piece has really been missing. So this is another area of change that we're making with IBS right now. We're trying to change the way we teach all of our systematic theology classes so that when we talk about side A beliefs, we're also uh, talking about side B ethics kind of at the same time. So in the intro to theology class that I teach to the new staff, I replaced one of the theology books with an ethics book uh, so that we could reflect on that. The other change we made, though, is that we took our Christian worldview class, and now we've made a, an ethics course. So we call it Christian worldview and ethics. So we're teaching kind of Christian ethics through the lens of worldview. And um, the, I mean, here's another interesting angle on this, too. In our culture today, some of the biggest questions that both non-Christians and Christians are asking mm -hmm. are ethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's an incredible. It, I mean, I feel like our culture is driving this because when you get into conversations with people, they don't want to talk about what they believe, what you believe, what they believe. They want to talk about ethics. How how are you living? How are you treating me? How am I experiencing you? Exactly. Those and 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 a lot of times there's been either a perceived negative. Uh, ethic being lived out by Christians or an actual personal experience. It, it wasn't what a Christian necessarily believed that offended them. It was how they lived out their faith. Mm. That's, that's exactly right. So I think as an organization, there's actually an incredible opportunity out there for us if we can learn how to, um, from some of those ethical questions, kind of connect them to Jesus and to, uh, and to the gospel. So, so that's, that's an area where you'll begin to see, see more things in the future. And so we're kind of starting to think about how do we, how do we help kind of form our staff um, and those to whom we minister? How do we help form them ethically? Um, so I went through the uh, Lenses Institute with our team. So a little shout out to Athletes in Action. And the uh, Lenses Institute is a great resource, multi-day chance to learn about culture, ethnicity, and race. Um, but there's there's kind of three three words that kind of get at the core of what lenses is about, and it's uh, see, understand, and act. And so really, what they're doing is, from my perspective, it's it's ethical formation, right? Because those three imperatives to learn to see, um, to understand what I'm seeing, and then to uh, and then to act on that, and they're creating an environment that's enlarging my capacity 
to do that, my capacity to see, hopefully my capacity to have greater compassion, uh, maybe than I've had before, and to motivate me to act. So that's an example in our organization of something that's going on in terms of ethical formation. Uh, but but we need a lot. We need a lot more uh, of that. It even I feel like what I used to want to hear from you or other leaders is, well, what do we believe about this? But but then what I was hearing was. No, well, what? How do we act? What do we do? How do we live? And and that helped me see, that's actually what the culture is asking too. It, it's an ethical question. Exactly, and where in many ways where we in kind of majority culture evangelicalism have blown it, um, is precisely in the ethical area of our our posture, and how people have experienced us. And so we can have the right sort of theological belief, and yet. Um, the way people experience us um, is not is not Christ honoring. What are you looking forward to in 2018? 18, kind of what what is on the front burner for you? Are you thinking through IBS at this point? Crew 19 yet? Um, yeah, what's next? Um, it's probably for um, for this next year. It's mostly focusing on what can we do to help better resource our staff. So that's mm-hmm. one thing we're thinking about. Um, the and then probably the ethics area. I'd love to see us uh, make some make some progress there. Uh, you know, we we take vows um, as a part of our religious missionary order. So in some ways, you can think about the our our kind of most basic missionary ethics are those seven vows that we affirm. And if you look at them, when we wrote them, we weren't, I wish I could say we were thinking this way. We weren't. Um, but those vows are actually a mix of kind of that side A and side B, not only affirming what we believe, but really how we want to live. And so I would love to see us um, have kind of a framework to help us as missionaries think about how do we want people to experience us and uh, how do we want to live that out. Okay, so if you were to choose one Star Trek character that you identify with most, who would it be and why? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I love, love Jean-Luc Picard, and uh, because of his Earl Grey tea, he walks up to the replicator and says, tea, <sighs> Earl Grey, hot, uh, but with a nice accent. So I really, uh, mm-hmm. I really like him. I think he's. Uh, I enjoy watching him in terms of how they portray him as a as a leader. So you drink tea and not coffee. Yeah, I'm not a coffee person. Never been able to groove on that. Mm-hmm. But our family still helps support Starbucks. My wife and daughter uh, do a good job of helping keep Starbucks in business. Okay, good. I was worried about Starbucks. Glad to oh, hear yeah. that. Oh yeah, we're we're doing our part. <laughs>